Your word is a lamp before my feet and a light for my journey. I have sworn and I fully mean it. I will keep your righteous rules. I have been suffering so much, Lord, make me live again according to your promise. Please, Lord, accept my spontaneous gifts of praise. Teach me your rules. Though my life is constantly in danger, I won't forget your instruction. Though the wicked have set a trap for me, I won't stray from your precepts. Your laws are my possession forever because they are my heart's joy. I have decided to keep your statutes forever, every last one. Amen. Josh speaks from that side, but since this is a little odd anyway, I'm going to speak from this side of the room. Uh, thank you, Afood, for reading the scripture, a new, new friend for Mountainside. So I'm Warren Brown, if you don't know who I am. Josh is on vacation, and he asked me to preach. Uh, this morning. Uh, we are focusing on the Psalms for this summer, and in the liturgy Psalm for this morning is Psalm 119, 105 to 112 that we just heard read for us so well. Preaching on the Psalms is like preaching on the lyrics of your favorite song. As soon as you start preaching about it, just kind of ruin the whole thing, because it's a <laughs> If it's a song or it's a poem, it's not meant to be preached on. So if I, like, preached on Jonathan's song that he just sang, I'd absolutely destroy it because it's a song, it's a poem. It has a certain way of expressing, and preaching doesn't do it justice. So uh, this is not so much a sermon as probably free association. Uh, so what I want to do is to focus on that first verse. Oh, is it up there? Get to where? Aha, there it is. Uh, focus on the first verse in this psalm, uh, particularly, and uh, focus on the concept of words and light in walking the path of our life. Um, reading this passage, um, particularly the first verse, I had two memories that came to mind that are very vivid. So, uh, in, in thinking about walking the path and having light to walk the path, I thought about an incident backpacking in the Bitterroot Mountains in Idaho. Uh, this is not us, this is just a picture I found. Uh, but we arrived at the trailhead kind of late for a lot of reasons, and we wanted to get back into the mountains a ways before we set up camp, so we start out, pretty soon it's dark, and it was one of those really dark nights, so we had out our flashlights, and we needed a light for our path to make sure we didn't get lost or go off the wrong direction, and so uh, that's one of the sort of images of walking on a path with the light that I have. 
more uh, vivid to me is backpacking in Yosemite with Sonny Salisbury and a group of junior high kids. Anybody know who Sonny Salisbury is? There's one person who knows Sonny. Sonny Salisbury was a youth minister in the Southern California uh, and was pretty uh, kind of well-known. Then he moved to Yakima, Washington in a Presbyterian camp. So if you were a Presbyterian in the state of Washington, you knew Sonny Salisbury. I ended up having a grad student who we had one of these. You know Sonny? I know Sonny. Uh, and Sonny Salisbury, I, I put that up there because he was a songwriter and actually created these albums. He has a bunch of albums of youth songs for campfire experiences. And so those are some of Sonny's. Uh, and he also uh, created the Sonny Salisbury freeze-dried songbook, which is the freeze-dried songbook. This is what you can carry in your backpack, and you can have these hundreds of songs to sing around the campfire out of Sonny's freeze-dried songbook. I'll, I'll turn that over to Jonathan. I'm sure you'll want to sing some of these songs, Jonathan. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I did this twice, one of the time with junior high kids, once with Cherise and once with Wren. And the time with Wren, I was along as a van driver and a sort of supportive parent. And we arrived at the trailhead late. And, and we had a place where we would get, was, need to get to for our campsite. So here we are with Sonny and about 15 or 20 junior high kids and sort of me at the back, walking along on the trail with our, our flashlights trying to make sure we didn't get lost or whatever. At one point, one of the kids lit up a rattlesnake off to the side of the path. And so with our light, we were able to guide ourselves safely past uh, the rattlesnake. Uh, Anyway, these are the visualizations that came to my mind immediately in reading this um, passage from the Psalms. So what I want to do is muse this morning about the idea of words as light or not. Uh, more of a flight of ideas, really, probably than a sermon. So first, the idea of light. Light here obviously means the basis or requirement for understanding or knowing. And we have a bunch of idioms that we use in our language that suggest this, such as, I saw the light, I had a light bulb moment, or a light went on, like in the cartoons, a little light bulb goes on over your head. Uh, please enlighten me, more heat than light. He or she was a bit dim. <laughs> uh, in the light of whatever, uh, that sheds light on the problem or casts light on the issue. There's light at the end of the tunnel. So all of these suggesting that there's something important in knowing about light. Uh, we also use uh, idioms about seeing. And so, uh, you know, I see what you mean and I see through someone or something, I see the big picture, we see eye to eye. So to know what it is I need to say, how does I need to live, so this is the light for our path. And in this psalm, it's clear that the path the psalmist is concerned about 
is the path that leads to godly and righteous acts and results in the blessings of God, the kind of light that we all need to see in order to uh, live our lives. Um, but having light to see the path is not enough. Uh, we still need to decide which way to walk. If you, in our little path there, we come up to a Y, you know, and you, am I going to go this way or this way? And I got light on both, and I don't. We've got to decide which way to go. And one of our problems is seeing the best way to go, but not having the courage or the will or the motivation or the energy to take the right path, even if we see it. Or taking the right path is a little bit fearful. Uh, it will expose my inadequacies or my uh, deficiencies of character if I take that path. So it's still a matter, even seeing the path, of deciding to walk that path. Um, the light causes us to see um, ourselves more clearly, and sometimes that is not exactly what we welcome. So John 3 uh, says, we, light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil, they exposed their deeds. Also, some things that pretend to be light really aren't. They're darkness, but they are sort of sold to us as if they are the light. So that's one issue in this, in this passage about light. And I want to talk now about the word. In a literate culture, we tend to ascribe light and truth to words. We just sort of automatically do that. And uh, so I want, and the core of what the psalm is talking about is God's word as light. That is the thing that helps us understand God's ways and walk God's path. So that's one meaning of word. I want to talk about, talk about word in kind of two ways this morning. One is kind of in the middle there, the idea of the word, God's word. And I also want to talk about words in general because there's a relationship between the two I want to draw. So we'll, we'll talk about the word and words. Um, so uh, how, uh, talk about um, whether words are light. Uh, I want to consider how words gain meaning that allows them to be light or not. I suppose a little bit this is like semantics 101, but you'll apolo I'll apologize for that. I'm a pro professor, not a preacher. <laughs> uh, so for the psalmist, um, the word in that psalm refers generally to the whole of God's revealed will and wisdom. And so there's a number of phrases used in that whole passage that are what the psalmist means by the word that is light for our path. So he says, your righteous judgments, your law, your percepts, your testimonies, your statutes, that which gives life. These are all the, the ways that the psalmist is referring to the, to the word 
that he is uh, talking about. However, we tend to kind of implicitly, in reading the Bible and the Psalms, uh, understand this to mean the Bible as the word that is being referred to that gives light. So I want to talk a little about that idea. Of course, it's not historically accurate that the psalmist would be referring to the Bible. The Bible wasn't there yet. A little historical trivia. Um, some of the passages were there, no doubt. They found their way into the Old Testament. So some of what, what was available was what's available to us. But the psalmist is talking more broadly than, than about the Bible, but we tend to pick up that meaning when we read the idea of the word uh, in Scripture. Uh, however, for the sake of discussion, I want to take up the word as the Bible and the words in the Bible and talk about that uh, a bit. So even with the Bible, there are issues with respect to discerning the light in what we read. Uh, when I first joined the faculty at Fuller, the faculty in the School of Psychology at Fuller, I began to hear a lot of theology speak. Uh, I got my PhD at SC in experimental neuropsychology, and then I went to the UCLA Brain Research Institute for a postdoc, and was there for 10 years, so I hadn't been around theology speak. And so, you know, within that first year or so, hearing a lot of conversation among theologians at Fuller, I hear words like hermeneutics and exegesis, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure I know what those mean. I think I know what exegesis means. But hermeneutics? What in the heck is that? Turns out hermeneutics is the field of theology that deals with the process of interpreting the scripture. How do we read the scripture and what processes do we go through in figuring out what it means? And exegesis is more focused on particular passages. What does that particular passage mean? Exegesis is the thing that, that uh, preachers do in sermons, what I should be doing up here, but probably not doing a very good job of, is exegesis. So anyway, I hear those terms and finally I figure out what those mean. And the point of both of those terms is, is that it is not a straightforward, obvious, slam dunk reality that you can just read the Bible and understand it rightly to see clearly the light that is being revealed in those passages. It takes some sort of peering through the passage to what sort of grounds and gives meaning to that passage in order to understand what it means. So in understanding the Bible as the word, it's a word that we need to read and sort of peer through and understand and kind of figure out what gives that passage its meaning for me and for us at any particular time. So in exegesis, we run, run into the question, 
uh, what grounds the meaning of the words that we read in the Bible. By grounding, I mean kind of gives the foundation for us, sort of the root of the meaning of this passage. How do we figure out what is the root of the meaning? What provides the foundation and substance to establish the embodied, real-life meaning of the words that we are reading? Where do we find that ground to help us understand? At this point, I want to take a tangent. This is Warren's, you know, free associations. So when I think about words and whatever, right now we get a lot of words from things like chat GPT. Uh, and there's a conversation going on in many circles, and that is how much light or truth is contained in responses from AI applications like chat GPT. Uh, what, what that is, is that's just billions of words and phrases out there in e-space and, and the internet space, and they are all glommed together, and then they use a learning algorithm to kind of sort those in certain ways, and then you ask a question and it uses a chat generator to give you a response. There's nobody behind it. There's just bunches of words that are statistically glommed together, and it works pretty well. It's actually pretty helpful most of the time. Uh, but the thing that triggers the conversation is that ChatGPT provides misinformation sometimes. I asked it a question about my field, and it gave me a reference, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I looked up the reference, and it absolutely doesn't exist. So, you know, misinformation. But equally, and less immediately apparent, is the tendency for ChatGPT to proliferate prejudices and bias. So prejudice with respect to race and ethnicity and sex and gender and other kinds of cultural issues, those prejudices get just amplified and passed on and passed on because they are part of this big database that nobody looks at. They just cull the meaning and give it back to you in a statistical answer to your question. Uh, uh, and so the question is uh, that in some cases we should not completely rely on the words of chat GPT as light or truth, all right? And the prob one of the problems is that you get those, those responses with a personal pronoun that will respond to you with I blah, blah, blah. And there's no I back there, there's just a statistical algorithm, but you get this impression that you're getting a response from an actual person, which you aren't. Um, so actually, a number of us at Fuller are starting to think about and talk about uh, language AI and what it means for us as human beings and what it means for thinking about life and theology and other things. Couple this with the problem or the tendency for us as human beings to readily believe what we read or hear. We readily believe it. Cognitive psychologists suggest that the first response is to believe what we hear, and it takes a second 
cognitive process to disbelieve what we hear. Uh, even though this process is unconscious, it still takes additional mental effort to disbelieve, effort that we sometimes don't bother to put into this process of reading or hearing and trying to understand. Because disbelieving just takes a lot of effort. So I'm not, I don't tend to spend that effort in disbelieving. So an example is if you give a sentence verification test and you give true and false statements, it takes you, you're very quick at verifying as true a true statement. It is, takes you longer to uh, respond as false to a false statement because you first have to read it as if you believe it and then think about where, whether and why this is false. So falsity is easily projected among us because we readily believe and have a harder time disbelieving. Um, so this is part of the explanation why some people, or we all, believe some things that we would not believe if we took the time to think about them. And uh, particularly if it comes from something like an AI system like ChatGPT, ah, this is AI, this must be true, and we don't tend to take the effort to analyze whether or not I believe this or not. So when thinking about all of this and about light and truth and what gives us light for our pathways, uh, I sometimes think that doubt is a virtue. Doubt and faith are not incompatible, and doubting is a virtue that we all need to cultivate at times. So back to uh, the idea of the meaning of words, and particularly uh, the words of the Bible and degrees to which they're light. So it is basically true that all languages, all language expressions, have an interpretive problem. And that is the root of the, pro the root of the problem is that the only thing that we have available to us to sort of ground or give meaning to what it is that's shared or read is our own personal embodied experiences. That basically behind all of that that we read or hear are things that we know that we have experienced. So for example, uh, think for a moment about the words mother and father and what those words bring to your mind. And so the question is, where did that meaning come from? That meaning came from our own experiences of mother or father. And therefore, it can't be exactly the same for you and me. I can't mean exactly the same thing by those words because my root base experience of mother and father is a little bit different than yours. Of course, we all have sufficient common experiences of words like this and a lot of other words that we can communicate. 
So somewhat similar meaning I have as you have and we can communicate. But somewhere grounded down there is my understanding of this that's maybe a little bit different than your understanding of this. And also we have um, and a life experience of common conversation in which we share back and forth and we come to sort of shape our meanings to the meanings that other people hold a little bit. And so we, we have a good basis for communicating even though somewhere down deep in our understandings and knowings what we mean is a little bit different than what you mean because my experiences are a little bit different than yours experience. That makes sense? Is that uh, all right? So here is the criti critical question. Uh, for the words of the Bible and our Christian speak in general are talking about faith, what can ground and give meaning, flesh, substance, foundation to the words such that they become a source of light? What is behind those words, the experiential life foundation that gives them meaning? What is it about words that cause them to be adequate light for our path? As the so I want to suggest two possibilities, and so this is what I've been driving at. Two possible, or two, not only possibilities, there's two ways in which our, our understanding of the Bible and our communication with others can be well grounded in something that brings light uh, and life. And the first is the words, whoop. So the first one is they provide light when they are grounded in the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the founding, basic understanding of our Christian faith. So Jesus came in the flesh as an embodied person that we might experience light, that we might have a firsthand experience of God's word living among us. What his judgments, statutes, law, percepts, testimonies actually mean. Um, so we're, I'm reminded here of John's gospel, John referring to Jesus as the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And so Jesus kind of founds his life and, and death and resurrection are the sort of founding life and life experiences that, that um, bring meaning and light in what we understand even in the Bible. Jesus fleshes out what the meanings of the words we encounter uh, about God such that they are a light to our path. In Jesus, the words become the word. That makes sense? In Jesus, the words, all these words that we read, become the word. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. I must be preaching. 
<laughs> so here's another one that I think is more immediately relevant and equally important. The words are embodied and become light and life when they are grounded in the life of a community of believers. All right? Specifically for us, when they are grounded in our life together as Mountainside Communion. We ground for each other, provide the basic sort of life meanings for each other, uh, the meanings of the Bible and of Christian faith and the things we talk about, preach about, and teach about. So much like the embodied life of Jesus allows God's word to become flesh and grounded in a life, so we also ground for one another the meaning of what it means to be Christian and what that, that light for our path actually is. So uh, this is not credit, trivial, this is critical, <laughs> I think. At least I think it's critical. Uh, so uh, however adequate or inadequate our life together may be, it is part of what we mean when we talk about Christian faith and the life of Christ and the gospel. Part of what we mean by that is going to be founded in the way that we live. However inadequate or adequate, and the problem with doing that somewhat inadequately is it dims the light a little bit. And to the degree we can continue to work on a life together that reflects the gospel, the light is brighter and, and shines. Uh, John's gospel says, Jesus says, as I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And uh, another passage, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify the Father. So there's something sort of inherent and important and basic about our embodied life together that provides the source, root, grounded meaning for what we are teaching. And so here's my, here's the Warren Brown version of this passage. So what I, my sort of version of this is the word, as I understand it in the life of Jesus, and the life of our, of your people, in this case, Mountainside Communion, is the lamp for my feet and the light, light for my path. 